Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarney. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Now, you may not know it, but all across the Fruited Plain as we speak, there is an online pastoral throwdown happening. And let me just tell you, there's no throwdown like a pastoral throwdown. And of course, what is the subject? Well, it's very simple, right? Christmas falls on, uh, Sunday falls on Christmas Day this year. And the question is, of course, is should churches meet, should they not meet? And the Gospel Coalition, in fact, has run these dueling sorts of articles to say, yes, they should, or no, they can't, it's okay. Let me just talk about this just for a moment. We have decided as a church family not to meet on Sunday. Instead, we're going to celebrate, as Hannah mentioned, the Lord's Day on Christmas Eve, Saturday, the night before. And, and some of you may have a question of why. Why are we doing that? Well, a couple of things. One, when, when you're dealing with a church around the size we are, it really becomes sort of a massive logistical challenge turnaround to, to meet late into the night before big services, turn around and do it again on Sunday morning, particularly with its impact on staff, our AV needs, our children's ministries. And plus, let's be super honest, many more of you will be here Christmas Eve than Christmas Day. And that's all I'm going to say about it, right? So, so Saturday night versus Sunday morning. Now, now some would say, um, and I understand this, Pastor Paul, that sounds overly pragmatic. That sounds like a capitulation. That sounds like you're sort of caving in to social and theological issues. Aren't you sort of ignoring the underlying um, biblical uh, principles at stake? And of course, to which I would say, of course, that's what we're doing. No, that's not what we're doing, right? And, and to answer that, let me just briefly say something about the Lord's Day and Christmas and how I think we should view those things biblically as Christians. Now, for in the Old Testament, the Jews honored their Sabbath or Sabbat on Saturday. That's the last day of the week. But when Jesus rose on the first day of the week, Sunday, Christians began to gather on Sundays, the first day of the week, as the Lord's Day, as the Resurrection Day. And it replaced, over time, the Jewish Sabbath for Christians. And not going to spend time on this. I think you know this. There's clear biblical directives, guidelines about how important it is for Christians to gather regularly on the Lord's Day. We see this all throughout the book of Hebrews, for example. Um, there's a clear biblical precedent and direction for that. That's not true as it relates to Christmas, okay? Some people are maybe not as familiar with, with the history here. And I'm going to quote John MacArthur because I thought this was a, a great little um, in summarization of how Christmas has sort of come to be. And here, I'm going to flash this on the screen for you. Christmas as a holiday was not observed until well after the biblical era. The early church of the New Testament celebrated Jesus' resurrection, now this is interesting, but not his birth. In fact, Christmas was not given any kind of official recognition by the church until the mid-fifth century, partly because so many Christmas customs seem to have their roots in paganism. <gasps> it's true, all right? Christians have often been resistant to some of the rituals of the holiday, and I love this. You gotta love the Puritans. The Puritans in early America rejected Christmas celebrations altogether, they deliberately worked on December 25th to show their disdain. Don't you love those guys, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, a law passed in England in 1644 reflected a similar Puritan influence. The law made Christmas Day an official working day. The holiday itself is nothing, and observing it is not a question of right or wrong. As Paul wrote, one man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. And we studied that in Romans 14. Let me bring these two things together, the Lord's Day and Christmas. 
I, we, the elders, guys, we would not feel comfortable just saying we're not meeting on the Lord's Day period and to skip it or to cancel it altogether. At the same time, we're not commanded to meet on Christmas Eve. So we believe meeting on Christmas Eve instead honors the Lord's Day principle. In fact, I would just say it still counts, right? It still counts. And as the Apostle Paul would say, our conscience is clear, my conscience is clear on this, but it doesn't mean we're right. God will be the judge one day, and that's where we're going. If you have any questions, grab one of us. I just wanted to say that um, just so you can have a, a, an idea in mind of how we as leadership are processing these things. But this morning, Matthew chapter 1. Now, we have spent the last two weeks in Matthew's genealogy, and I thought, what a great Christmas surprise to spend a third week in Matthew's genealogy. No, no, no. Not so jolly, not so heartwarming. We're actually going to be looking at verses 18 through 25. Now, in this genealogy, Matthew is making the case that Jesus is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He's a son of Abraham, which makes him a Jew. He's a son of David by the royal line. That makes him a king. Now, there could have been a very natural response to Jews, particularly non-Christian Jews who are reading this. That's part of whom Matthew was writing this to. And it kind of reminds me of, of what would happen when, we, when growing up. Someone would say, hey, I can run faster than you, or I can jump higher than you, or hold my breath longer than you. What would you say in response? Prove it, right? Prove it. And we would attempt to prove it. And, and that's, in a sense, what Matthew is setting out to do here, to prove it. Because let's, let's get this clear. While the Messiah had to be a son of David, and while the Messiah had to be a son of Abraham, it didn't mean being a son of Adam, a son of, of, of David and a son of Abraham, automatically makes someone the Messiah, right? Undoubtedly, there were thousands of people who were both sons, male sons of, sons of Abraham and sons of David. To say that just because it, Jesus was that, Make, automatically makes him the king, that's kind of a syllogistic fallacy. So what's a syllogistic fallacy? Here's an example. Paul, Pastor Paul, is from Tennessee. People in Tennessee love to camp. Pastor Paul loves to camp, okay? I do not at all. I don't understand. It makes no sense. I don't like using the woods as my personal litter box. You get the whole thing. The whole thing is just wrong. It, that would be a, logis, a syllogistic fallacy, same thing with Jesus. Yes, he's a, the, 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 the son of Abraham, the son of David is going to be a male. Jesus is a male. This, this makes Jesus the king. Undoubtedly, there were many. And, and so what Matthew wants to do here, and really this is what his whole gospel is devoted to, he wants to set out his case. Why? What, why, what makes Jesus special? And can I just submit to you, that, that's, pro that's probably a banner, a subtext for all of us that should be in our lives. What makes Jesus unique? What makes him any different than any other religious figure, historical figure? Um, here, Matthew wants to present us 28 chapters, in, in essence, of evidence. So he talks about Jesus' teaching, his miracles, the resurrection. But this morning, he begins with the very first piece of evidence— and this, is, this first piece of evidence is sort of the miracle that begets all the other miracles. And if you don't latch onto this miracle, there's nothing to say that 
you should in any way latch onto the other miracles or the other evidence. Everything sort of flows down from this one thing. And of course, I'm talking about the virgin birth. It's the very first thing about Jesus's life that Matthew wants us to know. And I think, as we'll see, for a very good reason. So we're going to be in Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you can, I'm going to invite you to stand. And we're going to read these eight verses together. Matthew 1, 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, maybe even if we didn't grow up in a religious home or going to church or Sunday school, these are familiar words. They're part of our cultural Christian narrative. Everybody's familiar with them. The claim that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he had no biological human parents in the way that we think of them. And Lord, what we're praying for this morning is fresh eyes. Lord, get us back in touch with the wonder of what is being stated here. Bring us back to seeing behind the, 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 the surface. Lord, we're, we can be a cynical people. We can be a snarky people. We can be a, a suspicious people culturally. But Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to the wonder of the gospel this morning. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Please take your seats. There are actually, I think, in this passage, two stories. There's the story of Jesus, and then there's the story of Joseph. And so I think they are two messages, or at least the way that I'm thinking about it. So on Christmas Eve, we are, when we gather together, we're going to talk about Joseph and really focus in on him. But this morning we're going to begin, I think, where we need to begin, and that's the story of Jesus. And I'm entitling this message, The Holy Embryo. Now that title, which I think is brilliant, is not original to me, okay? That comes from a song by Michael Card, who's a theologian, songwriter, par excellence in the tradition of, of Andrew Peterson and Rich Mullins and others who were incredibly gifted, and he penned these lyrics, and I think they're very profound. He said, when the father longed to show a love he wanted us to know, 
he sent his only son and so became a holy embryo. A fiction as fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child. The hopeless babe who cried was God incarnate and man deified. That is the mystery. More than you can see. Give up on your pondering and fall down on your knees. And I believe that's the way Matthew would have us approach this. Why did Jesus have to be born from a virgin? Why was it necessary, not optional, not mythology, not, not, not a play off a pagan story kind of like it, but why was it absolutely mandatory that, in fact, Jesus be born from a virgin, he'd be a holy embryo? Two reasons, and th there's more, of course, but we're going to talk about two that I see from this text Two reasons are, are, number one, very simple, Scripture, and number two, salvation, all right? Scripture and salvation. Let's look at Scripture first. Now, whatever else you want to say about this passage, and, and maybe you're a non-Christian, maybe you haven't been in church forever, you've wandered in here, and you're like, oh my goodness, these people have, have lost their minds, right? But one thing ought to be crystal clear from this passage, whether you choose to believe it or not, Matthew is clearly making the claim that Jesus's mom was really a virgin, okay? That, that you can't reinterpret this spiritually. You can't say, well, Pastor Paul, he's just talking about the spiritual meat. No, no, no. Look, look at the text. Verse 18, it's like a neon sign that Matthew puts around this statement, the birth took place in this way. Can it be any more obvious? During the engagement period, and listen to the phrases he uses, before they had come together, he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. In other words, before they had sexually consummated the marriage, Mary was pregnant even though she had not had relations with another man. Now, now you may choose to not believe that, but don't make Matthew say something that he's not saying. Or don't pretend that he's not saying what he's actually saying. It could not be more clear. Remember, Matthew was what? A tax collector. And I'm not positive, but tax collectors are pretty good with numbers. They're pretty organized. They're pretty straightforward. When your CPA sits down to do your audit, which our CPA at church did this week, and it was a very good audit, but that's off the sermon. And it's, 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 it's not ambiguous, it's crystal clear. It's either yes or no, right or wrong. Here it is. That's what Matthew was saying. As, as, as was said in the, in, the, in the movie, A Few Good Men, these are the facts and they are not in dispute, right? Now, we're going to look at why that is the case, why that was necessary in just a minute. But for Matthew, he obviously clearly sees this is being nothing less than the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the fulfillment of what God had promised. Now, he quotes here from Isaiah chapter 7. Now, let me read Isaiah 7, 13 and 14 in the Old Testament in its original context, and let's talk about this just for a minute. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, try to understand something. In its original context, this prophecy um, happened within the realm of Isaiah's ministry. And the king of Israel, Ahaz, the nation of Israel, they were about to be invaded and crushed, or I'm sorry, he, Ahaz was the, was, the, was the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and Assyria was moving down and was about to crush Judah like a grape. And Ahaz was terrified, the whole nation was terrified, and they brought in Isaiah, they said, Isaiah, give us a word from the Lord. And Isaiah was given a prophecy and interestingly, Isaiah was part of the prophecy. God said, Isaiah, here's going to be your sign to them. Your sign to them is going to be, you're going to become betrothed to a virgin, and you're going to marry her, and then she will conceive and have a son, and this son in himself is to be a sign. It is to be a testimony that to the nation, to Ahaz particularly, that in fact, God is really with us, that God is going to deliver us, that God has not spared us. I mean, that God has spared us and that he's going to rescue us. And in fact, this happened. And so everybody, and in fact, we know that as we read through the Old Testament, the Southern Kingdom was spared at this time. And, this, and, and the son, and can you imagine going to school like this? It's like, oh, he's... By, by virtue of the fact that he's here, it's a reminder to us that God has made a promise. So the son himself was the sign. Now, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, yes, that's all true in its original context, but that's just a shadow. That's just a pointer. That, that, that's the first fulfillment, but there's a broader fulfillment, a second fulfillment. He said, actually, this is an event that's a type or a shadow that's pointing to the birth of Messiah. Now, this is important. What Matthew is saying is the way that people will know that this is really God, the way that people will know that Jesus truly is the Messiah, Emmanuel, is that he will be born supernaturally and miraculously. Not simply to a mom who was a virgin before she was married and they married and then she had a child, but to a mom who was probably, and this is just astounding, probably 13, 14, 15 years old, she will supernaturally and miraculously conceive a child without having sexual intercourse. She is a virgin. This will be the greatest sign of all. It's the one thing that you begin with, you don't end with it, but you have to begin with it. Now, let's be honest just for a second. This is simply too much sometimes for some to handle, to wrap their minds around. In fact, for mainstream denominations at the turn of the 20th century, it was, it was way too much to wrap their minds around. Oh, this is such an embarrassment. Oh, Christianity needs to find its respect in the public square. Let's just sort of downplay this doctrine. 
Let's sort of hide it under a bushel. Let's spiritually reinterpret it. Let's round off the rough edges. Now, some did that. And by the way, this is exactly what modern progressivism attempts to do about a whole host of doctrines, not just the virgin birth, but about the exclusivity of Christ, about the atoning sacrifice of his death. Some out of, and I think there, there's a genuine noble motive here. Some just simply want to make the gospel more palpable. They want people to believe in the gospel, Jesus Christ. They, they, want, to, they want people to be saved so badly. They want to remove any and all obstacles that they can to make it more digestible. There's others who obviously do it for more sinister motives, right? They're embarrassed. They're, they're social, it's socially unacceptable. It sets them outside the inner ring in their job or with their friends, and they want to be seen as respectable and not those silly Jesus freaks who believe all this crazy stuff. And let me just say, church, that kind of thinking, that reasoning, that rationale, whether it's applied to the virgin birth or the exclusivity of Christ, or the fact that Jesus was a substitutionary atonement, or whether it's same-sex marriage or any other doctrine. That's crystal clear from Scripture. Here, here is why that is flawed on, on two levels. First, let me just say this. If we can affirm miracles in the Bible, like, for example, the resurrection, which Paul says, hey, if you don't have the resurrection, you don't have Christianity. Can we all agree with that? Well, if you can't affirm something like the virgin birth, what makes you can think you can affirm any of the other miracles in Scripture, including the resurrection? It'd be like saying, I ran a four-minute mile. And if you want to know how far fast my mile is, it's four times four. But you know, let's say I ran a four-minute mile. And it would be like saying, oh, yeah, but I bet you couldn't run an eight-minute mile. And then you have to stop and think a minute and be like, wait a minute. <laughs> that, 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 that didn't make sense, right? So, so if you can't believe in this miracle, why believe in any of them? But number two, don't you see it undercuts the very authority of the Word of God? Because if you can't trust the Bible here, church, where can you trust it? See, this is where progressivism always leads. It always leads to apostasy. It always leads to reinterpreting Christianity into something that is not only heretical, but is oftentimes completely unrecognizable. So the virgin birth is necessary, both because God predicted it and because we accept the authority of the Word of God. Just so that we don't make this purely a, a mental theological exercise, where do you functionally, where are you functionally tempted to reinterpret the Word of God in your life? Where, 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 have, where, where, where is some area, I don't know where it is for you, but we all do it. Money, relationships, our personal habits, our time, our marriage, our children. There, there, there's something that we, we know in the, in the depths of our heart, God said it. His word is crystal clear. It is a fact. It's not in dispute. But because it's either inconvenient, because it's hard, because it's costly, because we're, 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 we're going to lose something, that we're just like, I'm, 
I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to reinterpret that. I'm going to put my sort of personal, cultural spin on it. Where is that? Guys, we all do it. We all do it. Very easy for us as evangelicals to say, it's just so easy. Look at, look at what these crazy people are doing to the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of salvation and the doctrine of, of the virgin birth left and right. When Nathan, if he was here, might say, no, 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 you're the man. You're the woman. Where, where's that happening in your life? So quit arguing with God, quit debating with God, and just bend the knee. So it's necessary for Scripture. The second reason it's necessary that Jesus' mom was a virgin is because of salvation itself. Okay, now look back here at the text. The angel says that, that Joseph is to name the child. And remember, that's really important because how was legal relationship determined? By the father naming the child. So even though Joseph, and, and Matthew makes this clear from last week in our text, that Joseph was not the father of Jesus, he was simply the husband of Mary. But in order for Joseph to adopt Jesus, for Jesus to legally be his son, and thus to be able to claim this descent from David, remember, what does what the angel call Joseph? Son of David, right? In order for that to happen, Joseph had to give Jesus the name. Kind of like when um, Zechariah and Elizabeth, Elizabeth um, was going to be pregnant with John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said, I don't believe it, and he was struck mute, and he couldn't talk for nine months. So husbands, there's something to learn in that, all right? He couldn't talk for nine months, and then finally when he could talk, they asked him, what do you want to name this child? And he's like, John. And they're like, nobody in our family's named John. What, what's up with that? That's what the angel said. It established his legal authority. Same thing here, and here is the name. Now understand, it was a common name. Jesus was a common name at the time. It means God saves. Now, understand something. Names, probably even more so than now, were particularly important because they were given as a sign. They, they, they meant to communicate something. So, so somewhere along the way, Jacob got the name Jacob, it means deceiver. And he carried that title his whole life until God renamed him. So, so th th there's a real biblical significance where names are meant to symbolize the thing that they mean for that person. But in this case, now please understand this, Jesus, is, the angel's not saying, I'm just going to, you're not just going to have a son as a sign like like Isaiah had a son, right? It's not like Isaiah had a son and that, and that in itself is a sign. What the angel says is not only will this birth be a sign, but the child himself will be the actual means of salvation. You see, when he juxtaposes Isaiah 7 on top of this, you see what a profound claim Matthew is making. See, it's God who saves in the Old Testament by virtue of the fact that he sends this son to be born from Isaiah and the virgin. And the son is a sign that God is with us. 
Now, not only is Jesus' birth and conception a sign, but in fact, it's actually God with us. Jesus is not just the signs. He's the means by which God accomplishes salvation. And the reason that Jesus had to be a man, it's not all he was, but he certainly was not less than a man, goes back to what we studied in the book of Romans. And as you flip there, let me just remind us of a couple of things. Romans 5 talks about the first Adam. And Adam, Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 through 3, Adam was our covenantal head. Adam was our representative. He, he, He was like the guy we elected to go to Congress. But instead of voting the way we wish he had voted, he took us all down with him. He fell into sin, and we all fell. And because of that, all of us are born sinful. All of us are born with original sin. Remember, this is really important, sins are not just mistakes or something that we do. Sinful is actually who we are. It's our condition. We're totally depraved. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we possibly could be. It just simply means that there is no area of our life that is not tainted with the effects of sin in some way. It's part of our core being. And if that's true of any human being, and it is, you don't need to know it theologically, you can know it experientially, just looking at the world. If that's true, we have a very big problem when it comes to the man named Jesus. See, if Jesus had been born of two human parents, an egg and a sperm, he would have undoubtedly, understandably been born into sin. He would have been born corrupted. He would have been a mere man, a sinful man at that. But when it tells us here that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, this means he was born as a holy embryo, perfect, unstained from sin. Now this was, and again, now I'm venturing off into the philosophical realm, but let me just speculate. Because some of you have asked, well, well, Pastor Vall, did did God supernaturally, um, you know, impregnate the egg with the, you know, all that sort of stuff? I, I, I don't think any of Mary's genetic material or Joseph's genetic material went into the conception of Jesus. I think it was all of the Holy Spirit. This was not a half God, half man sort of hybrid. This was 100% holy, born sinless, perfect. Why did that have to happen? Because in essence, Jesus is placed back in the place that Adam was. See, Jesus was created just like Adam, perfect, sinless, unstained from sin. And God gave Adam a commission. He said, Adam, be fruitful and multiply. Tend the garden, obey me, trust me, walk with me, submit your life to me. And if you do this, you will live. We don't know what would have happened if Adam had continued in a state of perfection That's not for us to sort of speculate, but what it does tell us is that if we are truly going to be saved from our sins, we need a second Adam. 
We need someone who can come and do what the first Adam did not, which is to live a perfect life, which is to do everything perfectly, righteously, not just horizontally, but vertically, to worship God, to know God, to honor God, to point people to God. Only could such a sinless person not only represent us, but then turn around and die a substitutionary death in our place. The Lamb of God in the Old Testament always had to be what? Spotless. Jesus had to be sinless. And Paul makes this crystal clear in Romans 5. Let's, let me read that. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. That's the first Adam. Ready with me? I love this. Much more <laughs> will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. There's your second Adam. Therefore, this is just amazing news, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. See, our, our, our human propensity is to say, I don't like this idea that Adam acted on my behalf, even though, by the way, this is how all of society works, right? It works in government, it works in the home, it works in the business. All of us are dependent on some way for someone acting on our place, in our place. And if that's, that's your instinctive response, remember just what a glorious piece of good news salvation is. Because what was the most unfair thing in the world is that Jesus would live a perfect life and that righteousness be counted as ours, as our representative, even though we have nothing to do with it. Because that is the gospel. This is why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. Now, I want to kind of draw this to a close by pointing out something that is not quite as obvious here, but it is. We're just so familiar with it, we miss it. And this, this is the idea that the Holy Spirit is at the very center of the incarnation. He was conceived, it doesn't just say miraculously, it doesn't just say by divine intervention, it says by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the third person of the Trinity. This is the Spirit of Christ. The same Spirit, by the way, that Jesus promised to send when he ascended into heaven. Now, if you're a Jew and you're reading this, um, that life was given by the Spirit of God, you immediately as a Jew would have thought about what? Genesis 1, where it talks about the, the earth was formless and void. And what does it say? The Spirit of God was hovering over the water. Where there was darkness, where there was nothingness, the Spirit, even at creation, gave life to humanity. What, 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 what is Matthew saying here? Salvation is unequivocally and unambiguously a supernatural saving work of the Spirit. In other words, seen rightly, the birth of Christ... The miracle of the virgin birth is in itself a template 
for you and I to understand how it is that we are saved by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, I love this passage. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Now here's the key verse, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Church, the, the spirit that gave life to this world, the spirit that conceived Jesus in human form, truly man, is the very same spirit that gives life to dead human hearts. See, if you, if you don't believe in one, you can't believe in the other. See, if, if, the, if the birth of Christ is not miraculous and supernatural from start to finish, then how could your salvation be? Paul says, it's the same spirit. If it's not miraculous, then we're just, this is sentimental humanism. We are observing, we're, this is nostalgia. We're just somewhat imperfect people trying to make ourselves better, to, to, to live a better life, to make the world a better place, to enjoy things while we have time, while we're still here. Or this is really true. And by virtue of the fact that God has thundered down into human history, by the conception of his son miraculously transforms and changes everything, and it gives us this Advent season, I think, a new way, a fresh way to think about what God is doing in our lives. Guys, I know the Advent season can be just one that's just full of heartache. And a lot of times it's because people in our life have deeply disappointed us. People are not doing what we wish they would do. You notice that? I mean, so often we frame our lives that way. If people would just start doing what they should be doing, my life would be so much better. That prodigal, that unfaithful marriage partner, that betrayal by a friend, that disappointment. It's a reminder this Advent season that our only hope in life and death, is that the Spirit of Jesus Christ will sovereignly give life, awaken hearts, prick consciences, heal brokenness, and ultimately forgive and cleanse your sin and my sin. So what is the only appropriate response to the virgin birth this morning as Michael Card sings, give up on your pondering, fall down on your knees. Because that's what we're, we do when we come to the table. We are reminding ourselves where our life, the good life, is truly found. It's found in Christ alone. We are saying, we made a run at this, Adam made a run at this, and we all failed, and Adam failed. But I'm hitching my future to the second Adam, who was not, he was certainly not less than man, but he was so much more. He was our king, our representative, our sacrifice, our substitute. 
and because of the virgin birth, also our brother and our friend. So as I'm, I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward to prepare to serve the Lord's Supper to us this morning. And as they do, I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment or two silently preparing your hearts, reflecting on this word from this morning.